from 88.7 FM WXDU Durham and available via podcast on the World Wide Web. This is Shooting the Bull, your weekly survey of what's happening in the Bull City, brought to you by the voices of the Durham blogosphere. The opinions expressed on this program belong to the individuals expressing them and do not necessarily reflect those of WXDU or Duke University. Good evening, folks. I'm Kevin Davis. I write at BullCityRising.com. I'm Barry Reagan. I write at DependableErection.blogspot.com. Welcome to Shooting the Bull for Thursday, January 21st, 2010. Good to see you again here, Barry. It's been a, been a busy week here in town, I know, for, uh, for you and me alike. Uh, yes, it has, hasn't it? Hasn't it? <laughs> a little, um, little crazier than usual. Uh, yeah, before we went on the air last week, um, uh, there was, uh, as most of you know, uh, um, a major uh, natural disaster uh, in, uh, in Haiti, one of the worst uh, natural disasters in the Western Hemisphere in, uh, in our lifetimes. Uh, and we're going to devote most of the show to talking about uh, some of the relief efforts that people in Durham and uh, at, at Duke University are engaging in. Um, and we also have a special guest uh, who is uh, who's quite familiar with Haiti uh, to talk about, uh, you know, to help us put some of that in context and to talk about uh, um, some of the things that you can do perhaps that uh, are not uh, necessarily part of the organized charity uh, drive. So we'll be uh, talking to Deborah Jensen uh, in a little while. But uh, first, you had some, uh, some follow-up uh, from our conversation with uh, Deputy City and County Manager a couple of weeks ago. Absolutely, Barry, and, and we'll keep this brief, but uh, it's worth noting that uh, two weeks ago, of course, we talked about the Falls Lake rules and the impact of pollution uh, from nitrogen and phosphorus on water quality and the debate between Raleigh and Durham on what's going to happen with the Falls Lake watershed. Uh, we should know in tomorrow's paper how the stakeholders meeting between the local county and city governments went today to review the latest draft of state rules on the Falls Lake cleanup. And as as we learned here a couple of weeks ago, this is a multi-billion dollar issue potentially for uh, for Durham and Wake County in terms of where the responsibility lies for cleaning up these man-made lakes. Uh, the, the interesting news uh, with the release of the draft Falls Lake rules is that they actually accomplish or include a lot of the pieces that Ted Voorhees and Drew Cummings were asking for and asking about a couple of weeks ago, including some uh, linkages. Probably the, the, the most important piece in there for listeners who remember the show from a couple of weeks ago is an ability to go back and revisit the scientific modeling a few years into the process before starting the cleanup efforts for the upper side of Falls Lake. And one of the big issues I know sort of came up in my mind out of the conversation we had a couple of weeks back was the challenge of the science being fairly new in this area for this particular type of watershed, for this particular type of issue on what's a very new lake, and Raleigh and Durham claiming alternatively that the lake was getting worse or getting better. So, right. and, uh, and, and one of the issues, as I recall then, is that uh, depending on where you measure um, in, in the lake, if you measure close to the Durham side where um, water is entering the lake, you get much higher levels of nitrogen and other um, pollutants. But if you measure down where the uh, where the intakes to the drinking water uh, treatment plants are, the water is uh, apparently much cleaner. So, you know, I guess that's good news for Durham. I think so. I mean, ultimately, it needs to be good news for the region too, in terms of of the water cleanup. But a lot of the fear from Durham officials that we that we were talking about two weeks ago was the uncertainty of the outcome and the uncertainty of being asked to do something over 25 years based on only today's science. So the fact that there'll be a, a chance to revisit it built into the regulation rather than having to go back through the legislative process back to the General Assembly is really a, a pretty big step. 
And uh, as, as always, uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, that show is available uh, via podcast. Uh, go to the iTunes store and search for Shooting the Bull. And uh, uh, that date would uh, would have been uh, January 7th. So, um, uh, and, and I'm sure that we will revisit that issue. Uh, in uh, in the future, all right. Um, I wanted to wanted to get right into uh, you know into relief efforts uh, and such. Um, the the Duke University community um, is is doing a lot of stuff. And when I was asking around, trying to find if there was a, a central coordinator uh, for it, apparently there isn't. A lot of different departments are doing their own things. Um, but people who are engaged in relief efforts are encouraged to um, contact uh, um, the go to the Duke website at duke.edu slash Haiti. And if you have a, a, a fundraising program or a, a relief uh, effort um, underway, you can uh, add that information um, uh, at the website and let other people know what it is that you're doing. Um, for instance, um, 15,000 meals were sent down um, through um, um, the hospital state medical assistance team, uh, which is um, part of Duke University, uh, the Center for Civic Engagement. Uh, that, that's one thing that, um, that has happened. Uh, and, you know, there's just um, uh, a number. I guess if you're a student, and Kevin, you probably know more about how this works than, uh, than I do, uh, apparently you can use your, your food card, your flex cards or points or whatever, to donate up to $150 um, to the relief effort, and you have until midnight tomorrow. Um, to do that, so you know, Kevin, there's, give, me, there's, give me the details. How do, how do you do that? I don't know. How to, I don't know how to do that. Well, there's a lot of good ways to help out Barry, and uh-huh. you know, Duke has this central website www.duke.edu/haiti, which has information on exactly how to participate in that and other events. Uh, and if you're not a Duke affiliate, I think we'll talk a little bit later on. Uh, I, I believe a, a Duke affiliate and a number of other local individuals who are just interested in the issue have connected about bringing a dine out in the community night where 10% of proceeds will go to Haitian relief. Um, so, I mean, the and numbers... Those are, those are on uh, Sunday and Monday night, and we'll talk about that mm-hmm. later, and we'll give you uh, a list uh, of some of the restaurants and, and a website where you can find out more yeah. information about that. I mean, the, the, the numbers are just are just staggering in terms of the amount of support coming in, but I think, Barry, if there's something we've all seen in, in the news over the last few weeks, the need is tremendous. I mean, it's just... I, Almost unimaginable, uh, but and we do have someone here tonight uh, to help us to imagine, imagine as, that, yeah. as much as as is possible. Uh, uh, Professor, thank you for joining us on shooting the bull tonight. Uh, you were uh, were telling us before we went on air that you actually just returned from uh, Haiti a uh, a few weeks ago, correct? That's right. I was there in December doing research and some field work, uh, and uh, spent time in the the large slum of Cité Soleil talking with uh, friends and contacts of a graduate student uh, that I work with there. And I also went deep into the countryside to visit a Creole school with uh, an elderly Haitian linguist. And and I spent time in the archives. So it was a very full and wonderful trip. Well, help us understand, if you could, some of the, the back context of Haiti. And for Americans who have not been as familiar uh, with this nation, what are, you know, it's sort of a, <laughs> we are a half-hour show, but it's sort of, the, in short, the challenges that have that led up to infrastructurally, politically, uh, the, the other things that have made this uh, even more challenging than a natural disaster of this magnitude would have been otherwise. Sure. Well, we can go all the way back to Christopher Columbus. The island of Hispaniola is the first place where, where he stopped and set up camp. And Haiti is the, is the western uh, part of Hispaniola. The Dominican Republic, familiar to many tourists, is on the other side. 
and uh, slavery was was established there very early on. Haiti became a French colony, and while Haiti was called Saint-Domingue, a French colony, it was actually the most wealthy colony in the world. So although we think of Haiti now as the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, it was considered the pearl of the Antilles and of unparalleled importance. In 1791, the slaves there began a revolution which concluded in 1804 uh, with, with their defeat of the French army, uh, in part because of cataclysmic illness among the French troops of Napoleon Bonaparte. Yellow fever wiped out tens of thousands uh, of French soldiers. But in 1804, Haiti was the first independent black state. And so when we saw Barack Obama being uh, becoming president of the United States, it was a first, but there was another first, which was 1804 when Jean-Jacques Dessalines uh, began to lead the independent nation of Haiti. And Haiti uh, had to pay an enormous debt to France. Um, that debt has been calculated in in uh, the in 2004 terms as the equivalent of 22 billion dollars. Mm. So they paid that over the 19th century. And although there was initially great openness on the part of the U.S. toward trade with Haiti, eventually various kinds of embargoes and legal prohibitions uh, against uh, trading with Haiti made it a kind of ghetto in the midst of this very rich trading region. And Haiti also had conflicts with the Dominican Republic. There were conflicts between North and South, between various demographic groups. And instability has been a part of Haitian history amidst also an enormous amount of important literature, uh, fabulous art, um, the building of, of great monuments. Haiti has always been an extraordinary country. Let, let me um, let me backtrack and, and try to get down to a little bit more basic um, stuff for, for people who might not be aware. As you say, Haiti shares the island of Hispaniola with the Dominican Republic. How how large an area are, are we talking about? How big is the island? How is it divided? How many people live in, in both countries? Well, Haiti is about the size of Maryland. Uh, it feels much larger because it takes forever to get anywhere because mm. the roads are not in good condition. When you fly over the island of Hispaniola, you see a tremendous difference from the, the DR side to the Haitian side in that uh, it's terribly deforested once you get over the border past, uh, for instance, the Massacre River. And uh, the, so... The Haitian, the Haitian side of the island has that's been That's right. Deforested. That's right. Um, which is a sign of, of the poverty and and overcrowding and the use of charcoal made from wood uh, on so the Haitian it's not, side. It's not, that, it's not that the forests, say, have been stripped for export. They've no. actually been, been used. They, they were stripped for export during the colonial era, and now Haitians continue to use charcoal for their cooking um, and uh, for many complex reasons. And so deforestation is becoming very grave and uh, actually is uh, environmental issues are, are sort of a base for all other considerations of problems and hopes in Haiti. So, so what we're seeing now, following following the earthquake, um, is a massive uh, outpouring of, of relief aid. Um, media reports are indicating there's there's trouble getting this aid to where it belongs. Is that is that an accurate? Yes, 
Certainly. Uh, one thing, just to return to your previous question, though, Haiti has about 9 million citizens, and the U.S. is sometimes called an overseas department of Haiti in the sense that there are a couple of million Haitians in the United States also. So our countries are increasingly bound together demographically. Yes, aid is having a hard time getting through, and that is largely because Haiti does not have a very strong centralized state. You don't have telephone directories that are accurate and up-to-date. You don't have street signs. Um, there aren't Google Maps, for instance, that really have all the street names. Uh, traffic problems are enormous because streets are, are old and they have not been updated. Traffic signals don't work. And so right now, I think that there is literally an issue with people not knowing where things are, not knowing whom to contact. And this will get better with time, but part of the recovery is going to be creating more state knowledge. Mm -hmm. uh, creating uh, maps, creating address books, making everything accessible. You know, one of the, of the things that's certainly popped out in the news, and it, it, it worries me to see it so much of an obsession, has been the safety and security situation in Haiti. And uh, Barry actually forwarded along a, a, a blog post from the Institute of Southern Studies based here in, in Durham, a, a progressive organization, uh, telling one of their members uh, experiences being down there on the ground, experiencing people pulling together, you know, in, in the most you know, humane uh, spirit of just sheer survival, and really saying that, that this is being overblown. And of, of course, it's any modern listener who's survived the last year of American politics can see the obvious parallels that, that we have with our own assumptions and, and uh, jumps to conclusion uh, in, in, in a, a race-tinged world. But uh, what is the situation from your contacts there on the ground in Haiti? What what are obviously we know people are in, in great need, but what is the situation in terms of yeah. of just uh, the 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 on the ground, the ground life for those who have survived this crisis? I'm so glad that you that you brought that up because the people that I know who are there currently, who were there very recently, have said that that unrest and violence are not a major issue in any sense, and there's a concern that some kind of expectation is is really dictating these reports. Um, obviously, in any situation of devastation that extreme, things like looting uh, are, are going to be a possibility. And in fact, the definition of looting is called into question if survival by, by getting food or water from a store uh, is part of what you're calling looting. But uh, there was, for instance, a news report about Haitians carrying machetes. And, you know, this is one of these old, time-worn expressions of sort of look out for for these, you know, former slaves. and But tools were terribly needed to get people out of the rubble. Tools were in very short supply. My, my daughter was in um, Honduras for six months, and she carried a machete. Exactly, this, exactly. You know, There's like, no sign you know, that this... Like carrying your keys or, or, or you know, or, or a cell phone. That's right. And uh, so at any rate, from everything that I've heard, there has been a heroic response on the part of Haitians. There's been very little violence and unrest. That, uh, that blog post, by the way, is at uh, southernstudies.org. Uh, Chris Crom, uh, the director of the Institute for Southern Studies, was our guest a while back, and, uh, and hopefully we will be able to have him, uh, have him here in, uh, again in the future. I just want to remind you that um, you're listening to Shooting the Bull on WXDU Durham. Our guest tonight is uh, Deborah Jensen, professor of French and Romance Studies here at uh, Duke University. 
uh, the uh, editor of the uh, the Haiti issue of the Yale French Studies publication magazine, and uh, also the, the author of uh, Beyond the Slave Narrative, Politics, Sex, and Manuscripts in the Haitian Revolution. Uh, you, you spoke briefly about uh, about the Haitian Revolution, which lasted uh, uh, from, from what you said, like 13, 14 That's years right. back, mm -hmm. uh, right around the same time that the United States was was having its revolution uh, to free itself from uh, from colonial rule in, uh, in, uh, of, of Great Britain. You said that um, uh, the Haitians had to repay the French uh, some very large sum of money that took uh, almost a century. Why? If, if, you, <laughs> if you win, don't you, don't you get to cancel the debt? They were basically, the, the initiative came from the Haitians because they were, they were so tired of, of continually being threatened uh, with war by France and uh, continually having embargoes imposed. So it was their way of saying, we will pay you back for your property, which unfortunately included themselves, right? Mm -hmm. Because colonist property, uh, slaves were often attached to plantations in, in deeds. And so from, from most 20th century perspectives, this would be illegal for them to have to repay their freedom in that sense. So, so as Haiti, as Haiti um, transitions from the jewel of the Antilles, as you yeah. described it, to the poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere, how, how much of a part does this reparations pay? And, and what actually happens you know, along the way besides um, the embargoes uh, that, that right. you mentioned? What, what does Haiti export? We know that the Dominican Republic actually, to a large extent, exports baseball players <laughs> at, 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 the, at ah. this point. And, and, and yes. you know. And Haiti exports NFL players, interestingly. The Wall Street Journal had an article recently that said that you hear Creole being shouted out for sort of codes on the field, and it's becoming more and more common. Uh, but at any rate, early on in the Haitian independence, uh, America seemed to really recognize Haiti as a parallel case to America's own situation. But of course, that recognition could only be partial because America was also a slaveholding state, a uh, slaveholding country. And so uh, right away, merchants saw the possibility of replacing the French as the major traders on that island, and they were tremendously interested, and a great deal of trade took place. And I have found many newspaper editorials saying, we recognize Haiti's right to declare its independence. We did the same thing. This is a parallel case. Uh, that failed to continue over time for many complex reasons. It partly has to do with the expedition of Colonel Miranda uh, to, to liberate South America, to liberate Venezuela, which was financed by American traders who were working with Haiti. And this whole expedition went through Haiti. Jefferson was supposed to have really tolerated uh, Miranda's expedition and to see some interest in having a liberated Venezuela. But this news was, was broken and Jefferson had to backtrack. The Haitian traders were arrested, and it was the beginning of a real consolidation of Jefferson with the slaveholders in the U.S. and with the interests of France and Spain. Now, now in, in modern politics, we're, we're, I think, widely familiar with the name Jean-Bertrand Aristide, who uh, his regime uh, ruled Haiti for many years. But in more recent years, what's the climate been like there? Mm -hmm. What's the, the political um, situation been like in Haiti? Well, it has been quite stable for the last couple of years, but 
that doesn't mean that people are happy with the state. The state does not seem to be functioning very actively, which I think is the main uh, grievance that people have, that life remains economically extraordinarily difficult. And uh, you may know that, that uh, Aristide wants to return from South Africa to Haiti at this point. So does uh, Baby Duck, uh, the son of, of the notorious dictator uh, Papa Duck. Uh, and uh, I was speaking with some Haitians from Raleigh recently, and I asked them what they thought about a potential Aristide return. And they said Haiti doesn't need that drama, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is one way to look at it, you know, that there's so much going on. The issue of these former legacies becomes less urgent. So, so from a from a sort more social level, and before the earthquake, which changed everything again for for Haitians, what was the the average life of a of a Haitian like living in a city like Port-au-Prince? I mean, uh, economically, what were what was available as jobs? I mean. It, it, what was the, the typical living situation like? I know mm-hmm. you, you mentioned you spent time in, in some of the slum areas of the city. Mm-hmm. Yes, many, many people make a living just by going out on the street and selling what they can sell. Mm. And so the street is really a, a huge civic arena, and it's very jubilant and sociable. Um, it's one of the reasons that many people find that, that they love being in Haiti. And... Uh, uh, people tend to live in a collective situation. Many Haitians don't have a formal home address. Cell phones have begun to take over that home address function. Mm. People can receive money transfers via cell phones. And Haitians are paradoxically very connected by cell phone and by computer. And in fact, in the slum of Cité Soleil, I went into a little tin roof shanty and found a teenage boy working away at a laptop with a flash drive. And it was, it was not what one would have expected. Uh, But Haitians are are generally patching together uh, their livelihood, working cooperatively with others, trying to find enough to eat, typically still very generous with large members, large numbers of their family and of and of their community. I want to I want to take a second um, to talk uh, a little bit about what some of the other relief efforts in the community are, and then um, and then ask you uh, some other questions about uh, about those. We talked about uh, dine out for Haiti Triangle, um, which is uh, Sunday and Monday, um, been organized by uh, uh, Amy over at um, um, Watts Grocery Restaurant. And uh, some of the participating restaurants on Sunday are uh, Watts Grocery, Bogart's American Grill, Crook's Corner down in uh, Chapel Hill, High Five, Cypress on the Hill. And then on Monday, Foster's Market, uh, The Globe, Rue Claire, uh, Six Plates, Toast, Tyler's. Um, all these restaurants are um, donating 10% of their uh, proceeds to uh, various relief organizations um, um, to, to send things down there. On Saturday, I believe a Duke Law student has organized a, a fundraiser that's going to take place at Olivia's um, on the corner of uh, Main and, uh, and, and Gregson Street. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, again, I think 30% of, uh, of, of dinner and 10% of bar tabs will be donated to, um, to relief organizations. We were talking before, um, Professor Jensen, about, um, you know, a lot of the relief effort is something that makes us feel good to do it. We don't really know how, how much impact it's going to have. People are talking about very, very long-term projects, and you end up with this, um, almost this bottleneck sometimes of all this stuff um, going um, to a place. I, I know some of the things that I was reading. People don't want to donate money because maybe they don't have money, but they have extra blankets. They have extra shoes that they can send down. Um, you had said something about almost a, a person-to-person 
type um, way of, of, of people to donate money that you were uh, uh, aware of and I don't know is that something that you can that you can share with us uh, how people sure. might be able to do that if they feel uh, so inclined well, let me start, though, by talking about the, the, the possibility that many members of our community will be going to Haiti in the coming months and years. Um, I think many healthcare workers, uh, people doing legal work, architects, urban planners, carpenters, construction workers, communications experts uh, are all likely to find themselves drawn into the Haitian arena. And one thing that I think that people should consider, along with the very important gift of, of funding, is to gain more cultural expertise, more linguistic uh, readiness to deal with the Haitian people so that one avoids an occupation scenario, which is always one of the possible uh, valences of a massive deployment of troops and of people and of funds from other countries. So in Romance Studies, we are offering a course called Haitian Creole for the Haitian Recovery. Uh, students at Duke or UNC or other affiliated universities are welcome to join this. We're starting on Monday. It's French 199. And it will be taught by a survivor of the earthquake who was trapped in the rubble of a building uh, in, in Haiti and who is now recovering from her injuries and who is very fluent in Creole and has really extraordinary anthropological uh, knowledge and sincerity about Haiti. And also together um, very quickly. Very quickly. We've been sort of working around the clock. And another graduate student, uh, the first one I mentioned was Laura Wagner. The other is Reginald Patterson. Uh, who actually got out of Haiti only hours before the earthquake. And uh, so this course will be providing uh, medical uh, language. It will be providing um, uh, language that one can use in many of these fields, but also orientation skills, uh, how to be efficient when one is in Haiti. It will really prepare people directly for relief work. And uh, we hope that many people will participate in that course uh, and be ready to maximize their human uh, ability to really uh, ameliorate the situation in Haiti. Is that course open to members of the community who might have skills that are useful, or do you have to be enrolled? Well, uh, one normally one would need to be enrolled if someone has an urgent uh, uh, relief deployment that is coming up speak to us. Um, you can email me at Deborah Jensen at duke.edu. And uh, I think that um, organizations like Partners in Health or uh, uh, there, there are various other Haitian organizations that are largely, uh, uh, largely structured by Haitian employees are an ideal way to contribute because then you're contributing uh, to those employees as well as to everyone that they reach and you know that local practices are being respected, that politically these things are going to work very well. Um, in addition, I think that uh, if you know members of the Haitian community or people who know members of the Haitian community, you can reach out to individuals. And I personally find that um, I, have, I have been sending uh, some funds to people in the city of Tiguav uh, to the south and the west of Haiti who are in a terrible, terrible situation there and who have received almost no aid. And I, I know these people. I know their phone number. They called me, and we 
we arranged for a money transfer through Caribbean airmail uh, transfer. And so there are ways also to just sort of mine your community for contacts and see you can top off someone's cell phone minutes by internet if you have their cell phone number. And that is a way that with $15, you can keep someone in contact with a larger world. But obviously, for most people, the issue will be donating to organizations and donating their time if they're going to volunteer or be employed in, in the Haitian recovery effort. Well, Professor Jensen, thank you so much for uh, coming on this evening and, and sharing this kind of this kind of background. I, before before you go, I think it would be uh, interesting just to, to hear a little bit more about uh, from from your time on the ground in Haiti. Any any memories that that strike you now, or any scenes that you've seen of of uh, certainly the devastation there that bring back memories of you know places you've been or people you've known. Yes. Well, one thing that, that many people are very concerned about, in addition to the, 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 the extraordinary human tragedy, is the loss of cultural heritage. And there are many movements to, to try to preserve that. But I guess uh, I think about my visit to the home that, that Laura Wagner was staying in. The housekeeper in her home had sent me a thermos of tea when I first arrived in Haiti in December because I was having stomach problems, which does often happen. And so this was herbal tea that was supposed to really cure me of my illness. I went and I met her. We, we talked. She fed me this spicy Haitian spaghetti, which they have often for breakfast. I, I gave her a CD. We just enjoyed meeting. And she unfortunately did die mm. in the collapse of that home. And it's just a very sad personal memory. On the other hand, uh, this wonderful elderly Haitian linguist who took me to the school that he had founded in the mountains outside of Tiguave has survived. All of his contacts have survived. Uh, I think of the Episcopal Cathedral in downtown Port-au-Prince, which was filled with murals by the most important Haitian artists of the 20th century, reinterpreting Christianity in a Haitian context. And unfortunately, most of those murals uh, were mm. destroyed. Uh, just many memories of, of moments of, of beauty and kindness in Haiti and also of, of these extraordinary struggles now. I, I think extraordinary struggles certainly wraps it up well. And, and uh, you know, thank you for, for sharing your experiences. Uh, I know it certainly opened uh, some, some doors of thinking for me about the history and the context of, of Haiti. And certainly there are many, many ways that all of us can and should help out. Uh, again, uh, to get started with some of the uh, relief efforts around the university, www.duke.edu slash Haiti is a one gateway point to start at. If you are um, a member of the Durham Public School community, uh, dpsnc.net uh, slash news slash front page news will um, get you to a link showing uh, basically every public school in Durham uh, has something going on, um, whether it's uh, students or, uh, or faculty or parents. Um, also, we mentioned the Institute for Southern Studies. Uh, they are um, partnering uh, with nchaitiaction.com um, and the Network for Good. Uh, you know, um, I, we have not actually vetted all of these uh, charities and websites. I've been to the websites. They seem legitimate. That is something that um, if you are mm -hmm. donating uh, money to a relief effort, you should uh, take a few minutes and check it out and make yes. sure. Char Charity you know. Navigator is the best site to search for for that. There's yeah. been, you know, there's, there's too many people who are looking to take advantage of a, of a bad situation, unfortunately. All right. All right. Well, thank you, Professor Jensen, for, thank you. Uh, for joining us tonight. 
folks. To shooting the ball. I'm Kevin Davis. I write at BullCityRising.com. I'm Barry Reagan. I write at DependableErection.blogspot.com. I believe that uh, I do not have uh, proper outgoing theme music, so we're just going to leave you with uh, with some instrumental music, and we will see you next week, folks.